killing people at the Masjid al-Nur Mosque, um, he went to the nearby Linwood Mosque and it was there that Aziz was there uh, worshipping. He saw Tehran open fire with a gun and he responded by grabbing a credit card machine, of all things, to use as a makeshift, makeshift weapon. He ran towards Tehran. Tehran shot at him. Aziz had to hide behind cars. This was in the car park outside the mosque. Aziz grabbed a gun that Tehran had dropped, but it was out of bullets. Aziz said later, I was screaming at the guy, come over here, come over here. I just wanted to put the focus on me. He did that so that others could be saved. Aziz then followed Tehran into the mosque and confronted him. When Tehran saw that Aziz had a gun, he retreated to his car and he left. Through his actions, another potential massacre was averted and nearly a hundred worshippers in the mosque were saved. A true hero. And we rightly remember and praise the actions of people like him. And so often the disasters like, and tragedies like the Christchurch Massacre, a handful of people stand up in extraordinary ways with extraordinary acts of sacrifice, of bravery. But there's another type of heroism as well. Not extraordinary, not the sort of things that grabs the headlines, it's not marked by a momentary decision in a crisis of someone throwing themselves in front of a gun or diving into dangerous water to save someone. This type of heroism is an ongoing heroism, an everyday heroism, courage and perseverance in the mundane, day-by-day -day decisions of life. What I'm talking about is being an ordinary hero, Why isn't my clicker working? Here we go. Got the right one. Talking about being an ordinary hero, an everyday hero, courage and perseverance in the mundane day-by-day -day decisions. Being an ordinary hero in following Jesus, living out our faith in the everyday, and that's what Paul is talking about at the, as we come to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. It's how Paul answers the question that we might ask from the end of chapter 15. If you've been with us so far, you may remember that Paul has talked in chapter 15 last week. It was really the climax, you could almost say, of the whole book. The high point of the Christian message. Jesus defeating death, and rising from the dead, being given a resurrected, perfect body. And because of that, we also will be resurrected and live with him forever. The high point of the gospel. From that wonderful high point, we might ask, so how do we respond? How then do we live? Paul answers that question in this chapter, chapter 16. We respond to the resurrection by living the life of an ordinary hero, by being courageous and faithful in the everyday, ordinary details of life, in our use of money, in the way that we submit to authority, in the way that we treat one another.
Paul starts off in chapters in verses 1 to 4 by talking about being generous. He's talking about a collection that is arranged with the church. This is a project that Paul has been organising for some time, not only with the Corinthian churches, but in other churches as well. Churches in the province of Galatia, we find out in verse 1. We find out from other places that what Paul is doing is collecting money to help the church in Jerusalem, who are in pretty extreme poverty because of a famine. Look at what Paul is urging the Corinthians to do in verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So this is Paul, it's more than just passing the hat around on a Sunday, isn't it? It's not just getting people's loose change to, to, uh, to, to go and to give to those in need. It's to be organised, planned giving over an extended period of time. Paul is wanting the church to be generous, not just in a spontaneous way, but to plan, to plan it in their budget, to set money aside each week so that the, at the, the end result is a pretty substantial sum of money that Paul is collecting from the church and taking back to Jerusalem. Now remember the context of this passage. This very practical instruction to, for the church to dig deep into their pockets comes hot on the heels of that great chapter on the resurrection. It's no accident that Paul has put this passage here. He's answering the question, how then do we live in the light of Jesus conquering death? How do we respond to the reality of our future with resurrected perfect bodies for eternity with Jesus. We are to respond with our hip pocket. We are to open our hands and to freely give. This magnificent truth of the resurrection needs to affect us in the everyday plans and decisions of our lives. Paul many times in his letters talks about having a concern for the poor. And the appropriate response for us to God's kindness and forgiveness and generosity to us is to be generous and kind to others with our finances and in other ways as well. Not just to pull out, pull out our loose change when we see someone in need, but like Paul urges the Corinthians, to budget to be generous, to plan, to plan it into our lifestyle, to give to the gospel regularly, the work of the gospel regularly at church, Support missionaries like Carrie and Heidi. Give to the poor through Christian aid organisations like TIG or World Vision. Well, Paul moves on to talk about his plans to come back to Corinth to visit in our next section in verses 5 to 9. Why isn't that working? Here we go. Excellent. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. All right, cool. So in verses 5 to 9, he makes it clear that his plans are based on God's kingdom, on God's priorities. He says that he may come for a while or perhaps spend the winter with them. Have a look at verse 6. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me 
on my journey wherever I go. Paul's talking about helping the Corinthians, helping him practically, financially, probably loading, up, loading him up with supplies for the journey. Paul says it as if it's an expectation that they'll do this. Of course I will help him. That's because it was. It was an expectation. Of course these followers of Christ would support him, would support those who are working for the gospel, doing Christian work. It's the same principle that he's just been talking about. Being generous and open-handed. Be generous with the poor and generous in supporting God's work. A number of times in the New Testament, Paul and others talk about the importance of supporting those who are doing God's work, people in full-time ministry. Now, it's a normal expectation for, for churches today, most churches, to support their pastors. But it's just as important for us to support those who we send out from the church both overseas and in Australia. At SWEC, we're about to send the Chungs to North Africa. Kerry and Heidi have been encouraging us to be praying for the people who have so little opportunity in North Africa to hear about Jesus. And that's so important because we're in partnership with the Chungs. And an equally important aspect of that partnership is to be supporting them financially to be generous, to be open-handed in our support of Kerry and Heidi and Azalia. That's our responsibility as their sending church. It's not the job of the pioneers, their sending agency, it's our job. It's being generous and open-handed because Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, Paul then changes tack to talk about why he's not coming back to Corinth now. Look at verse 8. Oh, here we are. I will stay at Ephesus at Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. The work he's talking about is telling others about Jesus and starting a church at Ephesus. We might use the term church planting. That's what Paul's been doing. And it's interesting that he adds the point that, that op with that opportunity comes opposition. The way that Paul says it is almost as if the opposition is part of his reason for staying. Paul's not making plans based on his own desires. He's not holidaying in Ephesus because of the great climate. He's not making plans based on his own comfort. Do you ever hear people being asked about why they live where they live in certain places? Often uh, I hear people on the radio and other places talk about going to the country, uh, moving out of the city, and very often they use the term because of a lifestyle choice. They're making a lifestyle choice in getting out of the rat race, or whatever it is, meaning that it's a more pleasant lifestyle where, the, where they are now. Perhaps they're working less, perhaps they have a better view, perhaps it's because of the community, whatever it is. But that's not something Paul would have said. It's not a lifestyle choice for him to stay at Ephesus. 
Back in chapter 15, verse 32, he said that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. His life was put in danger because of of his choices in doing God's work. It's a kingdom choice based on God's priorities. He was convinced that, that that was the most effective, strategic place for God to use him at that time. And that came out of comfort, lifestyle, personal preference. Once again, how does Paul respond to the reality of the resurrection? By making decisions in his everyday life based on putting God's kingdom first. This seems a very ordinary, mundane chapter and we can be inclined, I think, sometimes to skip over it after the high point of chapter 15. Oh, it's just Paul kind of wrapping up the letter. We'll just skim read it. But if we scratch beneath the foot surface, we see a picture of what it's like to live with Jesus, our King, in very everyday ways, now that he is King over sin and death and every power on heaven and earth. This is a picture of how to live as an ordinary hero in our day-to-day planning, in how we decide to use money, where we decide to live. I wonder what sort of things have influenced you in where you live. Are you influenced by lifestyle choices? Or is it more for convenience to be near a train line or work or school? Or perhaps finances have played a big part. You're renting, you're renting where you are or you've bought into a place where you can afford. Now, I know for many of you, you're still living at home. Um, you're at uni or, um, and you're still with your parents and, and that's a, a financial necessity. So you don't get much of a choice where you live. But if you do or, or if, you do, if you are thinking of moving out of home, How much do kingdom priorities influence your thinking about where you're going to live? If I live in this suburb, I'll be closer to church and have more time for ministry. Or I'll be better in a better position to get to know my neighbours. Then we could also ask the same questions about our job or even our uni degree that we choose. What influences our decision to become a physio or a teacher, whatever it is that you're doing? Do I have kingdom priorities when it comes to what sort of job I look for? Well, Paul then changes the focus from his plans to Timothy, who works with Paul. In verses 10 to 11, he urges the church is this not working? There you go. In 10 to 11, he urges the church to submit to Timothy and to those in authority because they are doing God's work. Part of the point is similar to what Paul was talking about earlier, to look after those who are doing God's work. In verse 11, he says that no one should refuse to accept Timothy. But there's also another dimension to what Timothy was to what Paul is saying. The background of this section is the first few chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you remember, you might have been here last year when you studied that. If you remember from that, it's clear that Paul 
had a falling out with the church. Things were pretty tense with the Corinthians. For some reason, a number of the people in the church were questioning Paul's authority. Probably part of the reason for Timothy coming is to see to it that the church actually implements what Paul says, that they actually do what he says. Things are still pretty tense, so Paul feels the need to give them a bit of a warning that they really do need to listen to Timothy. So accepting him means doing just that, listening to what he says. But it also means showing him hospitality, looking after him, treating him well. Then jump down to verses 15 to 18. And Paul talks about accepting another group of people and submitting to them also. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, um, Anson said it better than me, Achaicus, Achaicus probably, yeah. They're people who are also doing God's work. Verse 16. Let's read that. Verses 15 and 16. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and they've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. It's likely that these guys were co-workers of Paul in Corinth. In a sense, they are Paul's representatives when he is away from the church, they carry on his work. They may be leaders in the church and that's why the Corinthians are told to submit to them. And again, like Timothy, Paul feels the need to give the church a bit of a prod to support these people, to get behind them, to get over the bad feelings that they still might have towards Paul and to support those who continue to work. So in verse 15, I urge you to submit to them. And then verse 18. Have a look at verse 18 with me. I was glad when Stephanus Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking in you. Verse 18. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. As God's people... How do we respond to the truth of the resurrection? By faithfully submitting to those in authority. Not because they themselves are great leaders, but because they are doing God's work. Submitting to them means submitting to God. That's a message that's not always popular, is it? It's not always easy to hear. It wasn't for the Corinthians. That's why Paul spends so much time and energy twisting their arms to do what he says and to listen to Timothy and these other guys. Submitting to, him, to them wasn't high on their priority list. And it can be hard for us as well, can't it? As Aussies, we're used to being anti-authoritarian. It doesn't come naturally to do what we're told. Submitting takes humility but we're often proud. I often think I know best, so I, d I don't want to do, I want to do things my way rather than being told what to do by someone else. But the cost of not submitting is high. That's what happened in the Corinthian church. 
They didn't listen to Paul and the other leaders and the result was division and fighting and all kinds of problems in the church. Because a bunch of individuals thought that they knew what, what was best, that they, what they wanted was more important than submitting for the good of the whole church, it ended up in this crazy mess. Now, I don't think we have a huge problem at SWEC with submission. But there might be times when you don't agree with the decision made by the Board of Elders or something that Pete or one of the other pastors does. Submitting doesn't mean rolling over and accepting everything without a whimper. We want to make decisions based on consultation. We, 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 want, we want to make sure that as far as possible, everyone is happy with decisions that are made. The elders and pastors will do everything we can to accommodate your concerns. But still, there will be times when decisions are made that leave some people unhappy. That's the reality of being, being part of a church of our size. And if you're left feeling sometimes uh, unhappy with, with a, de a decision, less than satisfied, then I guess you have two choices with the way you respond. You can choose to submit, to say, OK, I'm not totally happy with this, but I'll accept the decision and I'll live with it. I'll make the most of it. Or the other choice is to undermine the decision by gossiping, by trying to rally round those who, who can be on your side, to form divisions, creating discontent. That's the path that many in the Corinthian church took and it was disastrous. Now let me make it clear that, as I said, I don't think that's an issue at SWEC uh, and I'm thankful for that. So please don't think that I'm taking a swipe at anyone here because I'm not. Uh, I just give this example because I've seen it in other churches and other organisations, just how damaging it can be when people aren't willing to submit and the problems that it can lead to. It all happens too easily. The way that we submit to those in authority is a reflection of the way that we think of God and whether or not we're prepared to sit under his kingship. Submit to those over us as a response to the resurrection. And finally, be an ordinary hero in our everyday lives. Paul sandwiches a little, little phrase in the middle of these instructions to the Corinthians that I think is the key to understanding the whole chapter. And the high point of it. Have a look with me at verse 13. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Do everything in love. It's the language of heroic action, isn't it? You can imagine a leader saying that before some great climactic event, some crisis is about to happen. In the face of an attack, Stand firm, be on your guard. In fact, it's quite similar to the words that you may know from the book of Joshua when Joshua is commanded by God 
to go in with the Israelites and take the promised land. God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Only here it's not a time of crisis. It's not a time of war. It's Monday to Friday at the office. It's a normal Sunday at church, just like any other Sunday. Paul is saying to be on your guard, stand firm and show courage in your everyday lives. Be ordinary heroes. And notice that this comes right before the passage on submitting to these leaders that we've just looked at. What Paul seems to be saying here is not just talking about Stephanus and Fortunatus as leaders you have to submit to, although he is saying that, he's also giving them as examples of ordinary heroes. Look at their lives, see how they live, because you ought to live like that as well. Submitting is also used in the, in the sense of doing what they do, following their example. How do they live? Verse 16, they join in God's work and labour at it. They slog away faithfully in ministry. Verse 18, they, they refreshed Paul's spirit and refreshed the Corinthians as well. They go about encouraging people and building them up. That's what it means to be courageous and to stand firm in the faith. They probably didn't have a spectacular ministry. They weren't famous. This is the only place we hear about them. Stephanus wasn't a Billy Graham. There aren't any St. Fortunatus churches, probably because it's so hard to say, named after Fortunatus that I know of. We're talking about being faithful and slogging away in the everyday. Choosing to use their money for God's work. Being generous. Praying. Putting their arm on someone's shoulder and encouraging them. Stuff that perhaps no one sees and they don't get any re recognition for. It's unspectacular, ordinary ministry. And isn't that like what the Christian life is like for us 99% of the time. Unspectacular. Going to see G's on a Wednesday night. Going to church on a Sunday. Talking to that friend who's been struggling. Trying to make time to read the Bible before going to work. We might not think of this way, but living faithfully day by day, standing firm in our faith, it takes courage. We need to be strong. And so Paul's word to you today, if you are doing that, is well done. Keep going. Keep being courageous. Don't give up. But maybe we are a bit like the Corinthians. Maybe we need a bit of a prod, a bit of a reminder, a bit of a spur along. There are times when I find it hard to open my Bible. It can seem dry or a bit irrelevant to the pressures that I'm facing with my family or at work or wherever. Or maybe you're feeling discouraged. 
perhaps disappointed with God, unanswered prayer, illness, or some issue in your life that's a huge weight on you and, and, and there seems to be no way out. I know from experience that when I've been at that place, it's almost impossible to think of the idea of encouraging and giving to other people. I want to be careful what I say if you're in that place because it doesn't help just to be told to be courageous and pull yourself up. But what I do want to say is try to hear what Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians. Know that Jesus has put things right with his resurrection. Know that he has conquered death and every power that there is. And he knows where we are. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he is big enough to hold on to you. You may not feel courageous, but trust God not to let you go. So being an ordinary hero for you right now may just be holding on to God. Believing that God is there in the mess. Or for you, it may mean deciding to use your money in ways that are radically different to the world, in open-handed generosity. Being an ordinary hero may mean giving up comfort and security and deciding to work part-time or to take a demotion so that you work less, work less hours and have more time for ministry and family. Whatever it looks like for you, if you take seriously the reality that Jesus has defeated death and risen as king forever, it will change the way you live day by day, moment by moment. Amen. Well, we've heard a challenging yet practical application of the Word of God to our own everyday lives. Uh, and as we go and reflect on this, and Monday starts tomorrow, oh, it's a public holiday, that's all right. Tuesday starts in, uh, in a day's time. I wonder if uh, these words of being an ordinary hero for the kingdom of God, I wonder whether these words will still be in our hearts and in our minds. Because I think when we live with uh, the kingdom of God in the back of our minds, that's all it is in the back of our minds. And if someone might bring up a conversation about Jesus, sure, we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, but I think to really be faithful, what we see here in this passage, um, and to live as a faithful Christian, we need to have it in the forefront, in the center of our minds, for us to be uh, actively serving God and actively being faithful there. Uh, and it's not easy. Uh, there's a lot of practical application there that we've seen uh, this morning. So that's why, that's why we need God's help. That's why we need the encouragement of our brothers and sisters here at church. Uh, so that when we do go out into the world, uh, into our ordinary lives, whether it's changing diapers, doing Excel spreadsheets, whatever it is, uh, we can know that we are being faithful in serving the Lord. Uh, why don't we respond uh, in a simple way? Uh,